Well, one, one of the things I was thinking about is that not everything um, is as it often appears at first glance, and quite often in life, before we come to any conclusions, it's real important that we slow down and we examine the facts, and we stop and think for a little bit. I, I like uh, the comment that was made about the Psychic Friends Network. And, and now, the other day I was watching the news, and I'm sure some of you have seen this or read about it, but I'm watching the news, and the, uh, the owner of the Psychic Friends Network, or the Psychic Network, paid $500,000 to the young man who caught Eddie Murray, who plays baseball for the Baltimore Orioles, hit his 500th home run, and in conjunction also has over 3,000 hits. So he was the third person in the history of uh, Major League Baseball to reach these milestones. So he hit his 500th home run at Camden Yards in Baltimore, and he's had 3,000 hits, so only uh, Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, and now uh, Eddie Murray are in this elite group of people. Anyway, so I, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm watching this news broadcast, and, and this guy pays $500,000 for the 500th home run ball that Eddie Murray hit at Camden Yards. Now, here's how I think, and I don't know if you think this way or not, but I'm thinking, here's the guy who owns the, the psychic network. Now, if this is as true as he makes it sound like it is, now, what's the next obvious question? Why, why didn't he just pick up the telephone, call his psychic network, find out where the ball was going to be hit, spend $25 on that particular seat out in center field, and just catch the ball himself? I mean, that's all that I'm thinking. I, you know, I, I don't know if you think like that or not, but it certainly ran across my mind. Uh, another thing that I was thinking, too, is that oftentimes in life, our predispositions, our preconceptions are hard to lay aside. Um, it, we come up to some conclusions, we think we know our subject matter, but you know, we're not really sure if we know it or not, because when we're confronted by this irrefutable evidence, we discover that maybe we don't know as much as we thought that we knew. Well, I heard a story of a guy who, he and his wife were married for 20 years, and it was their 20th anniversary. And for 20 years, this gentleman and his friends would go every year deer hunting together, and it was kind of a guy thing to do. Well, his wife came to him on their 20th anniversary and said, Honey, for the last 20 years, I've watched you and your friends go deer hunting every year. And I've never really said anything, and I've always encouraged it because I know it's a great time for you guys to be away together. But she said, You know, I just thought that here on our 20th anniversary, I've always kind of envied the fact that they experienced something with you that I've never been able to experience in all the time that we've been married together. So I was hoping that this year that you and I could go deer hunting together and experience this, this phenomenon that you have with your friends. What do you think of that? Now, every guy in the world knows there's no good way to get out of that particular situation. The thing that kind of concerned him was that his wife had a definite opinion about every subject, regardless of how little she knew about it. And it was the one haven that he had to kind of get away and just refresh himself and regroup. But, he knew he wasn't going to get out of this, and he said, that would be a great idea. Let's go hunting together. So the two of them set off, and they go deer hunting together. And uh, he wants to make this a great experience for her since it's her first time. So he says, listen, honey, this is what we do. I'm going to set you up right here in this deer stand and uh, has her set, set up in this tree. And he says, and what we usually do is I'll go out and I'll make large circles around the tree. And and, and get out about a half a mile or a mile away, and any deer that's in the area will come back towards you, and I'll let you have the opportunity to, to have the first shot at a deer on this particular trip. 
So he goes out, and about 20 minutes, he's been making these circles all around where she's located. And as he's walking closer back to where he has got her set up, he hears boom, boom, boom. Three shots ring out. And he's thinking, you know what? My wife got her first deer. So he runs back, and the closer that he gets to where she's set up in this tree, he begins to hear what sounds like an argument taking place. The one voice he recognizes is his wife. The other voice is a man that he doesn't know who this guy could be. As they get closer and closer, as he gets closer and closer, he hears this argument and it grows louder. And finally, he hears the man who he doesn't know who he is shout out in frustration, Okay, 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 lady, whatever you say, it's a deer. But at least let me get my saddle off it before you drag it away. You know, some of us... <clears throat> Some of us think we know, but we just don't know. And no matter how irrefutable the evidence is, we maintain this position because we think we know. And this brings us to our study of finances as we find in the Bible because God confronts us with truth and many of us have a preconception that we know and understand all about finances. But the reality is, as we'll see it, when God confronts us with truth, some of us are kind of like that lady. We think we know, but we just don't know. And we need to either change our mindset or maintain our stubbornness, and the results will follow accordingly. In Matthew chapter 6, it leads to the question for the morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 and look at verses 19 through 24. In this particular passage, we are confronted with the truth of finances. In a very different way. There's questions that kind of scream loudly at me as I read through this, and I think that they'll do the same with you. But in Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 19 through 24, we read this. <clears throat> Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The question that shouted out to me as I was going through this passage is, do I love God or do I love money? Do I love God or do I love money? It's a very personal question, and I want you to ask yourself the same questions. It's kind of a self-examination. Ask yourself, do you love God or do you love money? Am I more influenced by God, or am I more influenced by money? Am I a slave to God, or a slave to money? Do I serve God, or do I serve money? Are my actions and my behavior a result of my love of God, or are my actions and my behavior a result of the fact that God exposes that I love the God of money? Then I'm thinking, can I love them both? 
Maybe I just like money and I love God. When God speaks, do I listen or does money talk? And does money talk louder to me than the voice of God? Now, I think most of us, if we ask this question, and I ask for a show of hands, particularly in this group, would be sharp enough to say, oh, I love God more than anything in the world. I love God more than money. Because we know that that would probably be the right answer. But the problem that I have, as I am confronted by the truth of what God has to say, I'm afraid that many of us, in the final analysis, will discover something rather unpleasant about ourselves. And that is that God will expose to each one of us, in a unique way, whether we really truly do love God as much as we claim to, or whether we love money more than God. And then we've got some choices to make at that point. Jesus said you can't have it both ways. He said it is impossible to love both God and money at the same time. They are almost in conflict with one another because God uses money as a tool and a test and a testimony. And he says, do you really love me or do you love money? And the problem is that many of us don't really know the answer to that question, and that's why we need to be confronted with a standard that goes greater than ourselves so we can compare our behavior to the standard that God holds as far as how much do we really love him. And so what we need to do is we need to look for some symptoms or some signs of whether or not I love God as much as I say I do, or do I really love money more than I thought that I did, and deal with that. Now, the reason I say we have to look for symptoms, first of all, what's a symptom? Somebody help me out. What is a symptom? Okay, it's a sign of what? Okay, it could be a sign of sickness if we're referring to an illness. Um, okay, obviously you're a mom, and, uh, and as a mom, let me ask you something. What, what, is, um, what is fever a symptom of? Okay, if you have a fever... Your body is trying to combat something, and in the most cases, a fever is a sign of what? And of an infection. See, now, the fever isn't the problem. The fever is a symptom of a greater problem, and the problem is there is some type of infection that's creating the fever. The fever is just a symptom. And so what we need to recognize and understand is that w- when we see these symptoms as God exposes them in our life, He's trying to get across to us that they are a condition of something that is a greater problem. They're just a sign of something else that's behind the scenes. It's not the problem, but it's a symptom or a sign of a problem. Let me give you some, let me give you an illustration of kind of typically how this works. You take a young couple who just gets married, and they decide that they need all kind of stuff. These are their needs. And so what they usually do is they'll go out because they don't have the means to acquire those needs, whatever those needs are, they'll go out and they'll somehow or another borrow or charge on credit cards and other things to accumulate these needs so that they'll have them. So now they have all of these things that they bought and two or three years down the road, early in their marriage, they discover that they no longer can meet all the payments of these things that they had because something happened to cause a glitch in the income flow, and now they're not prepared to be able to pay these things. And so they've got this problem. 
So the symptom that they have is that they can't pay their bills. So what do they go, what do they go and do? Well, they've got this bill over here, and this bill over here, and this bill over here, and this one over here, and this one over here. They've got all kind of different interest rates for all of these different things that they've bought. And so they've got this, this, this big, big picture of debt that they have. And so then they get a, a notice in the mail or a letter in the mail or a phone call from a bank, and it says, hey, you know what? Uh, do, you have, do you have outstanding debts that you're having a hard time meeting the payments? Well, why don't you total all those things up, and I'll bet you we can come up with one loan and consolidate all of those things, and you can pay that off, and then you'll just have one thing to pay, and we'll make it so that the payment is a lot lower than the combination of all these things. So now you can just make that one payment and you can spread it out over a longer period of time, but you'll be able to at least get out of the hole that you're in with all these different people. So they go through and they have this consolidation loan. So what have they done? Have they dealt with the problem? No, they've dealt with a symptom. The symptom is we've got this debt. The problem is something that's greater and deeper than the symptom. So they take care of the symptom. Well, see, what happens now is, is that two years later, they still go about doing things in their life the way that they did to get them into the problem that they were into in the first place. So now, two or three years later, now they've got the same problem again. This, boom, 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 boom. They've got all this debt over here. But now, not only do they have all this debt over here, but now on top of it, they have another loan. It's a consolidation loan that now they have to pay off as well. So what's the problem? They deal with the symptom. What do they do? We need more money. The problem is we don't make enough money for all the bills that we have. We need to come up with some way to make more money. So if this particular point is maybe they've got, you know, maybe the wife doesn't work. And so, you know, the husband decides, hey, the only way we're going to get out of this debt is that my wife's going to have to go to work. You have to go to work. And maybe that's his solution or their solution to the problem that they have, but they're dealing with the symptom again. And so what they don't understand is now the wife goes to work, so both of them are working, but they also incur additional expenses because all the income that's coming in isn't just 100% income, it's offset by some expenses. Maybe it's childcare, maybe it's gas in a vehicle, maybe they had to go get another vehicle. Uh, maybe it's clothing, maybe it's lunch money, maybe it's all these things that go to whatever it takes to go out and work in, in the daytime and, and make a living. And so all of a sudden, they're dealing with the, the symptom again, or... It's that, that they were already both working and now this guy needs to go and take a part-time job at night or make more money because the problem is obviously we're not making enough money. That has to be the problem. So they deal with the symptom again. A couple years later and all the pressure that goes along with this particular situation, then what do we find? Here's symptom number three. We can't do this anymore. We need help. And so they see on a telephone pole nailed somewhere that you're having problems meeting your debts, then call this number. And for, you know, a certain fee, uh, we'll go ahead and clean up your credit and we'll start fresh and we'll wipe it all out. And, and maybe you just have to file bankruptcy, but at least then you can have a fresh start. And then everything will be okay again because what? We really learned our lesson. What lesson did you learn? You learned that you continually deal with symptoms and you never deal with the root problem. That's one option. The second option is even more devastating. And that is that, you know what? I'm pretty sick of being married. I'm sick of the pressure. I'm sick of the hassles. I'm sick of the bill collectors. I'm sick of the phone calls. I'm sick of not being able to do anything fun anymore because now we're trapped by all these things that we bought and there's tension and there's pressure and there's arguments and there's frustration. And you know what? I don't want to be married anymore. That solved all the problems, didn't it? Then you got the economic ramifications of that. So now you're divorced, and two years later you meet Mr. and Mrs. Wright again. And you go out and you start doing the same things all over again. Why? Because you haven't learned anything. We haven't learned a thing because we're always dealing with symptoms. 
and we're not dealing with the root problem or the causes of the problems in our life. And see, what, what God wants to be able to do is he wants us to be able to deal with the symptoms by helping us understand that that's all that they are. They're symptoms of a greater problem, and we need to deal with the root problems if we're ever to get out of the problems that we're having in life. So we need to stop dealing with symptoms, and we need to get to the cause of the problem. And the cause of the problem is simply this. It's financial bondage. It's financial bondage. Now, what I mean by bondage is this. In biblical times, and even later, and even not that long in the history of our country, when a person was in financial debt to the point where they could not repay their their, uh, creditors, they were actually thrown in debtor's prison. They hauled you right to prison and threw you in prison. You don't pay your bills, you're going to prison. That was financial bondage. And in Matthew chapter 5, we see a picture of that, of a person who's hauled off and thrown into debtor's prison. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on where you are currently in your financial situation, people don't get hauled off necessarily to jail anymore because they're not paying their debts. But another form of bondage is emotional bondage. The bondage of a lack of peace in your life or stress that's caused by all of these obligations and not being able to meet them. So we're in bondage in different ways. While we're not dragged off and thrown in prison, there are other ways that we can be in bondage. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you're living there right now. And there's nothing fun about it at all. And what we need to recognize and understand is that while debt may be a cause of bondage in our life, let me also help you understand something else. Proverbs chapter 30 Verse 7 through 9 tells us that, you know what? Abundance is also a cause of bondage in our life. You can be in bondage because you have too, too little, and you can be in financial bondage because you have too much. And in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 through 9, we read this. Two things I ask of you, God, and do not refuse me before I die. He says, one, keep deception and lies far from me, And give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Who is God? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of God. Interesting prayer, isn't it? God, don't give me too much that I forget that you're the source of everything that I have, and I say, God, who's God? Where was God when I was out working 12, 16 hours a day? Where was God when I was out raising investment capital for my business? Where was God when I was out doing all these things? Hey, don't give me that God bless me. You weren't there and you didn't see the sacrifices that I made to build the business that I have and the bank account that I now have and the cars that I have and the house that I have and all the stuff that I had. Who is God? And then on the other end of the spectrum, it's God, at least meet my needs, because if I'm starving, I may have to go out and rip somebody off just so I can eat. So somewhere in the middle of that, God, that's where we need to be. See, financial bondage goes one or or, uh, the other direction, really. If you don't have enough, you're in bondage. And if you have too much, you could be in bondage. So what is bondage? Financial bondage is an attitude. It's a mindset. It's any material thing that comes before our relationship with God. It's anything that moves him off of the spot of being number one in our life, and now it relegates him to a position behind whatever it is that now has jumped up front. Maybe it's too much stuff. 
Maybe it's not enough stuff. And all of a sudden, we're not worshiping God anymore, but we're worshiping the God of money and the God of stuff. And we need to recognize and understand what these symptoms are because in many ways, financial bondage is very subtle. Very, very subtle. And in fact, most of us won't even recognize the fact that we're in financial bondage until God exposes it in our life. Until we compare what we're doing versus what his standard is. And then we'll go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize, Lord, that I wasn't any kind of bondage as far as finances was concerned. In many ways, it's subtle. I'll give you an example. Historically in our country, you know, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed and it gave slaves their freedom and was, was an opportunity for them to, to take their freedom and to go and do whatever they wanted in life. You would think that the day that a slave was set free would have been a day of great rejoicing in their life. But the reality was, in many cases, what happened was the slave didn't even want their freedom because they never knew they were in slavery. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, well, that was nice that they were treated so well. It had nothing to do with being treated well. It had to do with the fact that they didn't know anything different. That's how they grew up. Some of them were born on the plantation. They were raised on the plantation. They worked on the plantation. They were fed by the owners. Uh, th that was all that they knew. And one day somebody comes to them and says, hey, we want to set you free from all of this. And they go, well, but we don't know anything else. And while we don't really like the way we're being treated, the fear of being set free and going somewhere that we've never been is too great a fear. We'll just stay here and remain comfortable in our misery. You know, I stop and I think sometimes that that's exactly what God is trying to do for us. He's saying, look, what I want to do is set you free from the misery of your life. You know you're miserable, but, if, but you are afraid to trust me. You're afraid to reach out and accept that freedom. You're afraid to walk in a way that you've never walked before with a God that you've just come to know, and you're afraid that somehow God is going to let you down. And so we go, yeah, we're miserable. And, and yeah, our life's messed up, but I don't know if it's going to be any better if I trust you and go where you're taking us. So I think we'll just stay here and wallow in our misery. You see, what God wants to do is set us free. And the truth will set us free. But the reality of that truth is, is that we have a choice of whether we'll accept that freedom and walk in freedom with him. See, by faith, Abraham, he stepped out. Faith is the assurance of, of things hoped for and the conviction of things yet not seen. And it was by faith that Abraham, when God said, come and follow me, and I'm going to take you to a land that you don't even know exists, and you're going to have a life that you don't even dream is possible. But if you just take that step of faith and trust me and walk with me, I guarantee you that I'll never let you down. Some of you are sitting here today and listening, and God wants to take you on a trip and free you up from something that's going on in your life, and you're afraid to step out in faith and trust him. And our only part in this whole plan is this. It's by grace we're saved through the agency of faith. God says, I want to set you free from sin. Reach out and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And all that it takes is that step of faith to believe what I'm telling you, and I'll set you free. Some of us are afraid because we're afraid of where God may take us. We know that we're comfortable where we are, even though we know something's missing in our life, and yet we can't believe that God would have something better for us. And in every area where he exposes these truths in our life, we have that same step of faith that we have to take. We need to recognize that when he shows and exposes these things in our life, we've got that choice to make. So now we're sitting here thinking, you know what? Am I really a slave to money? 
do I really love money or do I love God like I claim to? You know, the Bible says that when the nation of Israel was in captivity in Babylon, the nation of Babylon captured Israel and took them into slavery for 70 years. It says the nation of Israel, when Ezra was reading the law in the book of Nehemiah, we're told that when Ezra read the law, the people there didn't even recognize and understand what the law of God was. Because for 70 years they had adopted their captor's way of life. They didn't know what it was like from the old country. They didn't know what it was like to do things the way that God wanted it done. And so when they read the book of the law, they stood there and they listened, but they didn't understand a thing that God was saying. And so what God had to do was he had to provide men that were able to explain to them and translate to them the truth of what God was saying in a way that was real and relevant and could cross that cultural gap that they now experience and could take that language and explain the language, could take what God was saying and, and break down those cultural barriers. And you know what I'm thinking? That, that's no different today, is it? See, with God's Word, since it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, the problem that many of us have is there's this cultural or language barrier. We come from one direction in life, and now we need this explained to us in a way that's relevant so that we can grasp hold of this truth and say, now I understand. I understand it. And that's the whole hope every time we come together and we begin to study what God has to say. My whole hope is, is that every person that listens will be able to walk out of here with something relevant and it's been translated in a way that you understand it so you can walk away and say, I understand what God's trying to say. It makes sense in my life and now I need to adopt God's way and, for, and leave behind my way. That's all that this is all about. To help you to understand the truth of what God has to say. So let me explain this in relevant terms in very real terms, and hopefully knocking down any cultural barriers that any of us have, but there are going to be seven signs of financial bondage that we're going to see from what God has to say, and I'll guarantee you that it's going to hit close to home, that it's going to be relevant, that it's going to be transforming if you decide that, you know what, what God's saying is true, and you apply it in your life. The first thing is this. Seven signs of financial bondage. We're only going to take a look at probably a couple of them today, because I know that you just take a look at the first two, and if you begin to apply that, that's plenty of homework. Trust me, and you'll see as we get to it. Seven signs of financial bondage. First sign is this. Number one, avoiding your creditors. Duh. Is that translated relevant enough for you? The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously, says Psalm 37, 21. I love this old cartoon that I saw many, many years ago, and it's, made, it's kind of one of those things that just sinks into your head and you can never forget it. And the picture is, is that there's this, this lone, solitary figure knocking on the door of this huge house. All the lights in the house are dark. There's a three-car garage. It's a four or 5,000-square-foot house. There's an expensive car in every, one of the garage, in every one of the garage stalls. And there's this little, solitary figure knocking on the door of the house. And inside of the house, in all of the darkness, is a caption. And the caption is a conversation that's taking place with many people in the house. But the, the, but the voice says, is he gone yet? The other says, I don't know. I think I still hear him. The other says, I'm looking out the window and I can see him. He's not gone yet. And eventually the solitary figure turns and walks away. And as he walks towards the streetlight, we begin to see who the solitary figure is. And it's a paper boy trying to collect for newspapers that these people had ordered. You know, and I'm thinking, man, you know, it's not as relevant today, but when I was a kid, we had paper boys that came to the house to collect for money that you owed. But what's interesting to me and is fascinating to me is here's this outward appearance of affluence, and it's all a facade. It's all an illusion. Because internally, 
there was bondage taking place. Outward, outward affluence, internal bondage. Everything looked good on the outside. But you know what? On the inside, they couldn't scrape together 15 or 10 or $12 to pay their, their newspaper subscription. Many of us are in situations quite similar to that. It's a sign of our times. Somewhere along the line, we've been, we've been led to believe we're no longer responsible for our financial obligations. Today, the borrower has a legal recourse or method to avoid repayment of almost any indebtedness. Regardless of how frivolously that money was spent and where that money was spent, it really doesn't matter if that person took those funds and just blew it on, on opulence and luxury and vacations and, and stuff for themselves. It doesn't really make any difference in our culture today how that money was spent necessarily. But we have legal ways of not having to meet our financial obligations. In the LA Times, uh, uh, October 4th of this past week, the headlines read, state bankruptcies are up 20% and two-thirds are here in Southern California. It says, pushed by mounting consumer debt, the total number of bankruptcy filings in California rose 20% in the first seven months of the year to 87,000 cases of bankruptcy. And Southern California accounted for nearly two-thirds of that, according to this new report. Statewide, the number of business bankruptcies rose just, it says just 2.9% through July to about 9,500 compared to the same period last year. It's not getting any better, but it's only risen 2.9%. Isn't that wonderful news? 87,000 individuals decided, you know what, I need to deal with the symptom here and we need just a fresh start. Just not in that area. We've got fathers who avoid their financial obligation. There's a divorce that takes place and they take off and hey, out of sight, out of mind. You know, hey, you know, it's not my fault. It didn't work out. And hey, you know, things are a little tough. And yeah, I know I owe you the money. And yeah, I know I need to send you a payment. But hey, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know. We've got employers who make deals with their employees. And later they find out, well, you know, the deal was a little sweeter than we thought. Or the deal was going to cost us a little more than we thought it was going to cost us because you exceeded your expectations. And, you know, and, and gee, you know, it's just not fair that you as an employee are making more than the owner. And even though the owner cut the deal and came up with it and were more than happy if you would have ever reached those goals, they decided, you know what, we really can't pay you that. And so somehow or another, we've got to figure out a way to get rid of him or her. Oh. Or you got employees. We read about it all the time. Let's sign a five-year deal. Find out a month later, somebody got a better deal. They already want to renegotiate. And we sit and we laugh at that and we say, what's wrong with these greedy people? But we're no different ourselves in many ways, are we? See, there's a lot of ways to avoid creditors. And what we need to understand is somewhere along the line, you know, we, we have lost that day when we could shake hands and make a deal and honor that deal. Today, paperwork, I mean, it's, you know, contracts and paperwork and all the rest of it has gotten to the point where, you know, it, it's absolutely useless. All it is is a vehicle for a bunch of attorneys to get together and try to outsmart each other and word it in ways that somehow make it so elusive that nobody understands it. And then a judge comes in and he and she doesn't even understand it. But yet they have to make a decision on it. And it really doesn't make any difference because it's all worded in a way to try to alleviate the financial obligation that these parties are entering into. That's it in a nutshell. Take it for what it's worth. The saddest of all the evidence of avoiding creditors was a story that I read about not too long ago. 
There was an article in a business magazine, and it seems like the largest mail-order seed company in the United States decided to go out of business, despite the fact that its sales were higher than it's ever been in the history of its, country, uh, of its company. The seed order catalog. Uh, some of you, if you grew up in the Midwest or the East Coast or whatever, uh, there, there, I, I remember when I was a kid and we would raise money for our football team or whatever, we would get seeds, uh, flower seeds or, or vegetable seeds, and you know, just seeds, stuff that you plant, right? Some of you are going, this is a cultural barrier that I don't think I'm going to overcome. <laughs> Just not getting it, are we? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Born and raised right here in Southern California. You don't even know that people grow, grow food. You just go to Ralph's and there it is. And it just, it, yeah, okay. It's just there, Ralph's. I thought Ralph was a farmer. Um, but, but anyway, uh, so they would, they would, you would order these seeds and they would send them to you. And then you'd go around and you would sell them to people and they would plant them in their gardens in the backyard or whatever. Because, see, back in other places of the country, they have yards. <laughs> Another concept, cultural barrier, I don't know if we're going to overcome either, but they actually have land and stuff. So anyway, they would plant their gardens and stuff. Anyway, make a long story even longer. Um, what happened was that even though sales were higher than they'd ever been in the history of the com- a company, so were their delinquent payments. Because they would send the seeds out, and the people that would buy them, because they were large groups and things like that, wouldn't pay for them until they actually sold them. All right, now, delinquency was higher than it's ever been, and it reached 70% in this company. 70% of the people that ordered seeds didn't pay for them. Now, here's the kicker. Do you know what the average age of the offender was? 10. 10 years old. You know why the company decided to go out of business? Because when the company called to talk to the parents of the 10-year-olds, they found that the majority of parents had encouraged their children not to send in the money. What in the world is going on? And they figured that's about time to shut it down. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. They were serving... That's what happened. When we avoid our creditors, what we're saying is that, you know what? I love the God of money more than God himself. You've all been there and seen it, haven't you? You ever loan a family member or a friend or somebody money? They see you coming? What do they do? A lot of times they just ignore you, don't they? They don't come around anymore. They don't call anymore. Is it wrong to, to loan money? Well, we'll talk about that. But I'll tell you what, there are some very real consequences to it when a person on the other end begins to avoid their obligations. Avoiding your creditors is a sign that you have started to love money more than God. Now, the question you have to ask is this. What should you do? Don't miss this. It's a jewel. <laughs> the wicked borrow and do not repay. But the righteous give generously. Simple terms. You borrowed money. You have a debt. You have an obligation. Pay it back. Okay, well, how do we do it? Well, I think right here we have some counsel. We do it generously. 
We do it graciously. We do it thankfully. But we do it. Romans 4.4, 4, we read this. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. To one who works, his wage is not reckoned, reckoned as favor, but it's an obligation. Have you ever worked somewhere where, you know, the people that you worked for felt like they were doing a huge favor by paying you? It's this attitude, and we'll talk about it, but this kind of an attitude of superiority that, hey, you know what, uh, here, I'll pay you this week. Here, I work this week. If you want to act like you're doing me a big favor, then just mail that check to my house and not require me to do anything for it. Then I'll look at it as a huge favor. But as long as I work for it, it is not a favor, it's an obligation. The way this works is, I work, you pay. It's a great deal. Simple, simple system. Number one, how do we repay people? With the right attitude. With the right attitude. Generously, graciously, uh, not uh, begrudgingly. How many of you kind of have a bad attitude when it's time to sit down? You no, know, I'll never forget this. I remember staying at a relative's house who shall remain nameless, but he doesn't order tapes anyway, so what difference does it make? Um, <laughs> but, but, but I remember, I, one thing I remember is, as I stayed with him was that it, 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 when he would be in his, his room or study or at his desk paying bills, I heard some of the nastiest stuff coming out of that room. And, and I kind of picked up on that. And, and, and as, as I grew older and as I was paying bills, I found myself, like many of you probably are still to this day, when you're in your, your place to pay these things, and, and everybody in the household knows, stay away from dad. Stay away from dad. He, no, why, what's he doing? He's paying bills. Oh! I mean, you know what I'm saying? Maybe it's mom, you know, maybe it's dad. I don't know what it is in your relationship, but it's like we get this attitude that I gotta pay the bills. Now that used to be my attitude. But I'll tell you this, God has helped me to see something differently about paying the bills. Today, I praise God that I can pay the bills. You follow what I'm saying? And I don't sit down anymore and begrudgingly pay any obligation that we've incurred. But I praise God because I'm just a steward of his resources. I begin to realize, you know what? It's not my money. You know, here's what I'm finding out. Some of us got a bad attitude about paying back our obligations as if it's our money and we have other things we can do with it. It is not yours. You don't own it. Our, our business principle or philosophy is this. When we started our company, we decided that what we needed to do was, number one, we would honor God in everything that we do. And the way that we would do it when it came to finances is this. Our creditors are always paid before my partner and I ever take a dime out of the business. We pay our bills first. Whether it's our suppliers or whether it's our employees, they're paid first. And whatever's left over, that's what we have to deal with and live with. And it's difficult sometimes to come up with a budget based on that principle or philosophy. But I'll tell you this. I can sleep at night knowing that, you know what, we're doing what's right before God. And we're doing it with the right attitude. And that is that, yeah, 
people come and say, well, why don't you guys increase your salary? Or why don't you go out and buy something? Or other people that are in your business that are doing the same amount of volume, they're out doing all these things. Hey, life is an illusion. Don't fall for that. You get people come and say, well, I don't understand. You're in the same business. You're making about the same amount of money. You're doing the same amount of volume. Why can't you go out and have all this other stuff that these other people have? Because maybe they shouldn't even have it. Because maybe they're not paying their creditors. Don't get confused by what other people are doing around you. You do what's right before God. If you have an obligation, then you pay it. How do you pay it? With the right attitude. You praise God and you thank Him that you have the ability to make, pay these obligations that you've incurred. Also, here's another way that you do it. Proverbs chapter 3. Listen to this. This will free you up too. Proverbs 3, verse 27 and 28. Here's how you do it. Don't withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I'll give it to you when you have it with you already. Don't say, I'll pay you next Tuesday if you've got the ability to pay him today. One of the things that I've learned is when we have an obligation and we have the ability to do it, I hurry up and write the check and send it off because then I don't even think about anything else that could be done with it because there's nothing else that can be done with it because it's not ours anyway. So you just hurry up and meet that obligation. And sometimes people say, man, you know what? I mean, you're paying it ahead of terms. Hey, well, you don't understand. I, I, I just want to do that and get it out as quick as possible because the longer that we hang on to it, the more that we think that we own it, we don't own it, we owe you. So we're going to hurry up and just pay you and get it over with while we can. We're not going to succumb to the temptation of, well, you know, we can string them along a little longer. They're used to only getting paid in 45 or 60 days, so shoot, you know what, we don't have to pay them until 30 days, even if we could pay them today when the invoice comes or whatever. And I know you need sometimes for accounting purposes and to set up on the computer and you have 15th and 30th and all these kind of payables and stuff. But all I'm trying to get across is the principle is this. If you can repay your debt, then do it with the right attitude and do it right away. Cultural bridge gap. If you've got money that you owe somebody and you've got the resources available to you and you're jerking them around because you don't want to pay them because you think something else may come up in the future and you're not sure if you're going to be able to pay them back and what kind of problems it's going to cause you, can I just encourage you to do something and trust God that he can take you into land that you've never been before. Hurry up today. Don't hesitate and pay him back. It'll change your whole relationship with him. It'll change your whole relationship with God. If it's in your ability, let me ask you something. If it's in, within your ability to pay it back, why are you waiting? God has loudly and clearly spoken. Are you listening to the God of the Bible? Or are you listening to the God of money? Are you going to serve God and do what's right? Or are you going to serve yourself and do what's wrong? That's really the options, isn't it? And the last thing is this. We need to also recognize our accountability before God. We have to answer to God. We have to answer to God for everything that we do. Repay what you owe. How do you do it? Right attitude. Hey, sometimes it means thank you for loaning us the money. Thank you for doing whatever you did. And we want to repay you. And we want to thank you for it. And I know that we don't even owe it for another two weeks or a month or whatever, but we have the ability now and God's blessed us, so we're just going to go ahead and pay you sooner than we even said that we would. If you have the ability to do it. I'll tell you what I'll do. It'll just blow people away. Because that's not the world we live in, is it, folks? 
and recognize our accountability to God. God tells us that every vow that we make is actually a promise directly made to God and indirectly made to one another. You got less homework than I thought you'd have. Because this is all you got to deal with for this week. I wonder how many folks have been offended and how adversely it's affected our testimony simply because we've avoided our creditors. They call and you don't call back. They leave messages and you don't call back. They've come to you and they've asked to resolve it and you've rationalized or justified in your own mind why you don't even have to pay it back. God says it's the wicked that borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Now let's go back to the opening question. Do you love God? You say yes? I'll challenge you to consider to do what he says. Because Jesus said this, that he who loves me will obey my commandments. And that's it. Father, we just thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that it's relevant, that it bridges the cultural barriers that have been established in our life because of our backgrounds of various sorts. We thank you that your truth sets us free and that you're a God that we can trust and we can go the direction with you into a, an area, a, a land that we've never been before. And we just trust you that as we apply these principles, that somehow or another, not only will you be glorified through the process, but we will also have a peace that surpasses all understanding that will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.